Hmm. I'm going to talk tonight about more about the being of this experience than the doing of it. And first to say that typically we, all of us, um, we're wired, and it's again our survival wiring, um, we're wired to notice discrete experience, discrete objects, discrete events, discrete people, particular things. Particularly, not just all of the different things, but particularly those which stimulate us either for well-being or for not well-being. And so we notice, we pick up on, we tune into the highs and the lows. And we give them all our attention, we, well not all of our attention, but a, a huge amount of our attention. By doing it this way, it's a survival tactic and it works well, keeps us out of danger and keeps us finding the friends we need. But because we do this, um, we're very vulnerable to be triggered into greed and hatred. Because when it's pleasant, we're very likely to want it. And when it's not pleasant, we're very likely to get into some kind of negative relationship with it. And that's how we go about it. We believe that it's important to have good. And we really believe it's important to not have the unpleasant experiences. And that's why we seek them out in a way. Our minds check them out and get involved. So we're very busily engaged. And when this happens, which it happens so easily, it's natural for us, then we, um, we get engaged in them in some way or another, and then we get busy doing something about that. We get busy getting, chasing, scheming, <laughs> hanging on, comparing good, good, better, best, good, not so good, worst, worst. And we get busy trying to do something about avoiding, getting rid of, fixing, explaining, figuring out the unpleasant. Okay, we all know we do this. You watch yourself, you do it all the time. One word for this is neurotic. <laughs> Another word for this is exhausting. Another word for this is relatively futile. But we still do it because we believe this is the way to make ourselves feel good. So given that background, so now here we are practicing this meta practice. What we tend to do is look for the good parts of the meta and then we try and get it. <laughs> we try and get it right and we try and do something about it. And when it isn't working, then there's a problem and we don't know what to do about that. And, and lots of our languaging is about this. It's about, I'm doing this. Somebody came today and said they were working on their mother you know, really doing something here. I mean, you aren't working on your mother. Your mother's not even here. <laughs> but in the mind, it's like I'm doing something about this situation. And this doing is, the, is how um, the separate sense of self functions. I, subject, do, verb, something or other, with or to, object. So I'm working on my mother. Someone else was working on forgiveness. And this is the way we function. You know, it's typical. However, this is all set in the journey of awakening. Well, I can't do awakening. I can't get freedom. I can't even get meta together. <laughs> it doesn't, it's actually, 
It's the opposite. That's kind of oxymoronic. I want metta. You know. <laughs> so I'm wanting to talk tonight about undoing some of that habit of the way we relate to this practice and how to experiencing it, how to experience it without so much of that approach. So um, this is a maturing of our whole perception. And all of our meditation practice is leading us in towards this much more mature relationship with the unfolding of our experience instead of the one where we're trying to make it happen in the way that we think it should, that would be good for me. So it's, a, it's quite a, it's radical. The whole of our meditation practice keeps undoing the sense of me and how I behave and what I do because it shows the futility of it. It shows the limited benefit of that whole mode. But of course we apply, especially in the beginning and especially those who are learning anything, we, we do it the, the way we've always done things. The way we achieve things, the way we learn things. Um, and I always, and I've said this, I don't know how many times I say this, but I have the image when I think of us, I see us practicing meditation and learning how to be beings, you know, which are free beings, is I, I always equate it. For some reason, I've always done it. I don't know why, but anyways, learning to play the violin. And many of you will have heard me say that. I think that playing the violin is one of the most exquisitely... Um, skillful things humans can do. I just think a violin, let alone, you know, just as a, an, an instrument, it's an incredible instrument. And the kind of music that can come through it's um, unbelievably elegant. And it's just one of those things. I have this thing about violins. I've never played one. I must have some deep violin envy or something. But when you see, when you see somebody who can really play a violin well, it's not about fingers and strings. You know, something way, way more than that. So, but when you first learn violin, I assume, or anything that I've learned to play, then it's, it's about, you know, how you hold your shoulders, how you hold your chin, how you, you know, do your elbow this, which finger, what angle of the finger, what your thumb's doing, what your wrist is doing, what your breath is doing, what your stomach is doing, you know, there's so many pieces, then that's just your body, you know, then there's, okay, the phrasing of music, for instance, there's a lot of stuff in learning something. Sally talked about learning to drive a car on the back streets. You don't go straight away onto the big highways. And, and just recently, this has come to my mind because I had an experience for just two months, two and a half months maybe, really recently, um, where I joined a local choir. I mostly can't join the choirs because it's one of the not-so-blessings of being a Dharma teacher. You know, you're always going away, and often on weekends. And so you can't do the kind of regular commitments to things, especially when there's going to be a concert or performance, because you're not going to be there for that. I miss so many of the practices. So for years, I've not joined choirs, the occasional very casual choir. But I joined this particular choir on Salt Spring, which has a new leader, um, because there was a two-month period that I happened to have... Only, I only had like two little weekends away, and so I could make almost all the practices. And then there was a concert on Canada Day, which was the 1st of July. And so um, because I was around, I asked if I could join for this section just to get ready for this particular concert. So I did. And, uh, and she was really a very demanding teacher. And um, it was really f f great fun, except that most of the practicing part wasn't really great fun at all. It was she 
she, I don't know if all choir leaders do this, but she broke every, every practice period we had, she broke down whatever the pieces. And she said, okay, we're going to do this half dozen pieces and we're going to do these two pages of this piece and you're going to get this bit right. And then, then there were four and five part harmonies. And so you had to get your little bit right. So there were all those little bits. And we didn't get to sing the whole thing till way later. So we were learning timing and phrasing and the volume control and diction and, you know, all the things. And then eventually we got to the whole song and then we got to the actually what the hell the song's about. Excuse me, like, what the song's about? <laughs> Don't take that. Which actually has a meaning. And then we got to, it then put to music, lovely music. And then we got to perform it, which was basically giving it and sharing it with the audience. And they were funny. And there was all about Canada. That each one was from a different part of Canada. And some of them were funny. And some of them were poignant and historic. And the trains and all kinds of... But the sharing of the meaning of the whole thing with people was very joyful. That's what it was about. But to get there, there was all of this phrasing and fingering, you know, all the little timing and accurate little, all these pieces. But that isn't what it's about. But it's being able to do that so that the message can really, really be effective, you know, really be heard and really be felt in a way that is touching. And it's very like that with our meta practice. So we've got all these pieces that we're learning, these different phrases, these different, you know, particular words that might work in this situation. We've got um, our memories to to call up a situation that we remember and revisualize it. Some of us use was use sound. Some of us, you know, it's visual things. Um, we have different categories. We have d different relationships. All of this stuff, or all the all of the the fingering of the thing. But they, the total meta is more than the sum of these parts. When they all sort of come together, what we're leading to is a sense of expanded connection, which is really the point of all spiritual practice, is to reach the deeper truths of who we really are not addressing the little individual bits and pieces in you and your mother, whatever it is, even you and your forgiveness practice. It's so that we can then be clear and free and, and caring and connected and at ease. And the happy ones, as the Buddha was a happy one. So... Um, Temple said the other night something about the Western model about doing, you know, and learning to do. And he was talking about jhanas and th in, in that way, the surrendering into the simplicity of being present as the mind becomes more settled. And it, uh, hearing him say that, it was making me think how much we believe in our culture. I do, therefore I am. I mean, I know it's I think, therefore I am, but we really, it isn't just I think, therefore I am, it's I do. And I get my life together, therefore I am. You know. And um, what is the act? It isn't just that I exist. It's that in there, when you think about it, when I think about it, if I were to say, I do these things, therefore I am, what is whispered in the background after that is worthy of being somebody, worthy of being accepted, worthy of belonging in this society because I'm doing the things that one's supposed to do, like get my life together like have a car or whatever, you know, whatever we think <laughs> it is, you know. 
but our society and in our and we 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 are we are this society where it's not that there's a society and I'm maybe a member or maybe not like society is all of us and so we all are bought into all of this and we all believe a lot of these things and this this is what we have to start questioning do could we think inside ourselves I am therefore I am would that be enough to be worthy of being a member of society or does it have to do you have to do something obvious measurable I have a friend who really thinks that what we do is who we are and every time we introduce to somebody he says this is my friend and then he goes into this whole long ream about they're the president of this and they've got this and they have done all this and they're qualified and all these miscellaneous as though that would make them somehow worthy of some, my attention of course this is we do this don't we with with ourselves you know I'm not quite doing well enough so therefore I'm not worthy of being here or belonging or we get into a whole territory of how we add all of this judgment that Sally was talking about last night so there is this sneaky agenda maybe it's known maybe it's unknown maybe you see glimpses of it but for many of us most of the time it may be quite sneaky and subtle of um, metta is trying to fix you you know it's trying to make you worthy of calling yourself a meditator (laughs) or something like some way of doing it right in some way getting it right so that what I mean, partly it's so that we can feel okay with ourselves, but there's a, there's a lot of being seen in everything we do. It's that little poem, I looked for it and I couldn't find my copy of it, but that little poem of Hafiz that Sally said a few nights ago, something about, let's be honest, every time we meet somebody, we're really saying, love me. Of course, we don't quite say it like that or someone would call the cops and that little poem, remember that poem? Well, really, all the things we do as we're going around, we're saying, you know, if I do these things, will you love me? Will I be okay? Am I okay? We're all feeling that. We all know we're all feeling that. We don't, we, we have this big facade that looks like we're really, especially when we get gray hair, we're supposed to not have that kind of thing going on. We're supposed to have got it together. <laughs> but deep inside, so much of the time, that's the motivation. So, um, metta, practicing metta is practicing, well, we've all said it so many times, being friendly, being kind. And so there's a way of looking at this kindness when we do it from the doing mode in order to get it together, you know, do it right, learn it. I don't mean to say that that's the wrong way to do it, but there's just, there's much more to spiritual life than that. Um, We, um, when we're kind, we tend to think then of doing kind things. We tend to think of, you know, words we can say and gifts we can give and gestures we can make and, you know, little flowers we can put on somebody's cushion and, you know, or, you know, birthday presents some cakes we can bake or whatever the things are, all the beautiful things, acts of kindness, lovely. Active kindness. 
things we can write, you know, and messages we can pass on and all the rest of it. Words that come out and say what we want to say really well. All of that's beautiful, active kindness. And I want to speak a little bit to uh, what I call passive kindness. The more subtle, not so much doing kindness, doing kind words, thoughts, deeds, but being in a more passive way. Because in my mind, it's as important and probably more than the doing. Because the doing is bound up to a degree in this sense of me, subject, verb, object, which is the small me. And, uh, and this is leading us beyond the small me. And so there are other forms of metta which are more subtle and which I feel are, are more expansive even than doing kindness. For example, when you're here in retreat, and this came up several times with people I was speaking to today, when we're here in retreat, one of the um, parts of our container is that we're silent. And going along with the silence means we aren't actually in contact with each other, other than going through doorways together and, you know, when we overlap lineups or whatever and yogi jobs but on the whole we're attempting to not connect and it's it's you know it's peculiar because here we are really close together all doing the same thing and yet we're keeping ourselves to ourselves to a certain degree we haven't made this more as explicit as we do in certain retreats because it is a meta retreat meaning there is this ease and warmth and kindness nevertheless we are asking for that to happen. And that can feel slightly odd when several of you said to me today, I just feel like hugging everybody. <laughs> you know, like you don't all feel like that all the time, but as the heart gets more tender and when there are those periods when you're feeling really friendly and accepting and grateful, or all, you know, it's, well, this is working, happening, you know, we want to actually smile, you know, and in some way. And yet... The act of restraining that and not going up to somebody and hugging, we know and we understand, and some of you have a lot of experience in retreats, is a bigger kindness. Because actually you don't know. When you go up and hug somebody, you're feeling like hugging them, but they might very well be in the midst of a breakdown around their mother. Or they might, you know, <laughs> they might be working on their mother. <laughs> Or, um, you know, they, they might be just being really, 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 really soft for the first time ever. And then a hug would just, you know, be the last thing they're available for. Whatever. We don't know. They may be totally in the same space you're in. But because we're not speaking, we don't know. And so the gift of giving people space to feel whatever they're feeling and process whatever they're processing and do whatever's going on in their own intensive quiet time here on retreat is a huge gift. It's a gift of respect. It's a great kindness to actually be left to do whatever it is you feel like you are doing, what you want to be doing. And that isn't always the way it is in the world. And, and you know, a lot of the gifts are actually to reach out to somebody or to, to you know, bring them into your arms rather than just like leave them to figure it all out on their own. So it's not, this isn't an absolute thing, but in the atmosphere of retreat, there is great kindness in giving space to people, leaving people to do what they're doing. And that's an enormous generosity, but it's not an overt giving, but it really is. The giving of the precepts, you know, we're saying we're going to behave in these various ways, basically a certain degree of restraint. 
but actually that's for the gift of safety you know for the gift of reassurance i'm not going to come over towards you in any way that's going to alarm you that's an enormous giving but it's a very passive kind of giving it's a not doing because of our wiring to go for the drama, for the highs and the lows and the, the doing things, because that's our tendency, we often dismiss this more subtle area. I know my last time I was talking, I was talking about our noble qualities being shy and timid and not coming forward. We come forward with our opinions, pretty, some of us, we're out there with them, or, you know, our anxieties really show up, but the the quiet wisdoms don't come forward so loudly. It's one of the biggest gifts we ever can give to anybody is attention. And it's not a very overt gift, but it's, it's in one of the most enormous gifts. Actually, really notice. Really give your gaze. Really open yourself to and give some space to. It's a huge act passive kind of giving, to give some interest. It's an enormous gift to really be interested. You know what it's like when somebody's there and they're kind of looking at you and they're sort of giving you time, but their eyes are rolling up and they're looking at their watch and they're not giving you any interest. It's painful. It's rude, actually. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I got to go now. Or they, you know, you have a conversation and they tell you all about themselves and then they have to go now. the opposite of kindness. Taking your attention when you don't want to give it. To give respect. You don't have to do anything to be respectful. It's not an overt. To be available. A good listener. That's an enormous gift, actually listen. To listen well. Generosity, generosity of listening. And then there's even more sort of not doing things which are also gifts. So just reflect on these things and the ways we can be like this too that's not necessarily doing anything. Um, to restrain our urges, you know, our impulses. The reason we would restrain an impulse is because we stop and we consider, oh, I wonder what that's going to actually land like. That's actually respectful. It's gift. It's that's kind. We, I know we know all this stuff, but it's useful to remember this aspect of practicing kindness. Mm. And along with that, to um, to restrain, as Sally was talking about last night, to to restrain those judgments or not to believe them. You know, the, because we just believe it. We, they're so quick and they come in the mind so fast and we just give them the power, you know. And it's like, if, if we can restrain that, it's just in a judgment. Let's just wait and see. Is that actually, do I have enough information? So often we're so hasty and we don't just take the time to have a little more information. We think somebody means something and then we reply to what we think they've just said, but actually it wasn't what they were really saying or meaning. We don't give time often gets worse in the modern, you know, this modern era is getting, everything's getting faster and faster, seems to me. I don't know that my grandparents were any wiser for being slower, mind you, but. 
And there's a thing to reflect on in this that a lot of the doing we do, which is the mode of I want to do something about getting something more pleasant or getting rid of something unpleasant or fixing something that I think would be an improvement, all of that behavior, activity, churning, is one way you can look at it is it's fueled by not trusting it to be okay as it is. There's a lack of trusting what's going on or there's a lovely phrase that lots of people use in these parts trusting the unfolding of life well if we trusted the unfolding of how things are and our our ability to respond and be with them in appropriate ways as it's happening we wouldn't have such this anxiety to make it some other way and have to fix it we get in there as though we could make it the best as though we're the driver and we're sort of running the whole show. It's about trust, and that we don't have a lot of trust for very good reasons. We're vulnerable. Life is unpredictable. We won't stay alive forever. Some of it's painful. People hurt us. We hurt people. And there's an awful lot of reasons why we're not easily trusting. So it's, it's forgivable. It's not wrong. But when that's going on, um, that's pushing all the doing to do something to make it what we think will be better. When we are able to be more trusting, we don't have to mess with it so much. We can actually go with the flow more easily. So trust is a big piece. I think it's an enormous aspect of well-being, an enormous aspect of letting go, letting things be as they are, letting go of all these urges and so on. And so a further reflection on practicing as we do metta, I want to um, focus for a while now on the aspect of practicing this, which was the, the um, in a way, the meaning behind, one of the main meanings behind the way the Buddha taught metta to help with the fear that these monks were having and help heal the struggle of that. The, you know, these monks against the, all of the surroundings that seem to be hostile and scaring them. It's, it's the whole um, movement of practicing which moves us from the small, tight, separate, individuated experience expanding towards the, the vast experience of being, of interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh called it. Whatever words you want to use in the English language is hopeless in this department. It's very good at I want to get something. It's brilliant at that. Many different ways we can say that in the English language. And so I want to focus on how practicing in this way is expansive. Now you will have noticed that we've moved in the categories we've been with and and using as muses to help us access friendliness in an expanding direction, which continues on and continues on dramatically more so the next few days. We move from, I like you. You know, you're my friend and I'm going to happily wish you be well and peaceful. It's all about me and my little world and my close circle of beings, my benefactor or my dear friend or my puppy probably or whatever it is. That's definitely my puppy. It's not, uh, you know, the dog who wanders around the block. It's my little puppy. (laughs) Because we are wired 
to be and identify with being these individual beings and, we, and our, our relationships are our relationships and they are the ones that touch us the most, our close dear ones. This is our perspective as the individual, the separate individual. But all of our spiritual practice, all of our spiritual practice, spiritual practice is expanding us way beyond that limit. And so when we, we move through these categories, when we get to the neutral person which we got to yesterday, this is the beginning of an enormous shift actually. And the shift is, it's not about being friendly with a being whose stuff, whose story, whose ways touch me because I care about them. It's the opposite. It's here's a human being whose stuff I don't know about and care about. And can I be friendly? And this is a big shift. It's an enormous shift from the individual. And so what happens with this, this is, this is Buddha is so brilliant, is that it's not their story that evokes our friendliness. It's the commonality of their being a human. And so what we do, if we want to reflect on why we would be friendly with this person we know nothing about, we, you know, we don't have any charge around, we have no history with, we have no particular like, no particular like. There's just a, just a fellow person here. What we reflect on in order to feel connected to them is what we do share, not what we don't share. We don't know what we share, we don't know them, but we, even though we don't know the detail, we do all share that we are all vulnerable, for instance, and that we all want to be loved, and we're all going around saying, Love me, love me. Do you like me? Am I okay? <laughs> I just want a little of something other so I can feel a little happier because it's, it's a bit scary for me right now. We're all like that. And we all have always been this way. And we've all cried buckets. And we've all had our hearts just completely let down and people disappointing us. And we've all spat our water on Ailsa Price's books. And <laughs> we've done, you know, we've just done all these things. We're all like that. We get embarrassed by each other and ourselves and we get we cringe, we get excited, we get uplifted only to then get disappointed, you know, you know. This commonness we actually can, can feel in each other. When we remember that, you know, you're just as vulnerable as I am. I don't know exactly how it shows up in you because we haven't really had any history together, but I know perfectly well and maybe right now you're feeling ill because you will sometimes. Even if you're not now, you might someday, you're vulnerable too. Your body is subject to you know, all kinds of accidents and illness, just like mine. So this expands us from the particular to the general. From the individual to the common, to the mutual. Then when we move to the difficult person even more, it, what's tricky with the difficult person, of course, is why it's difficult, is that there's, there's pain involved. That's why, that's why it's difficult, right? So there's something that's fractious or conflictive between us, which is therefore unpleasant. The feeling is unpleasant. Well, with our wiring, as soon as it's unpleasant, it's going to trigger all of our aversion in trying to fix it, which is why you've all been working on your mother or whatever you've been doing since we've had the difficult person to deal with, because now we want to do something about this pain. It's triggered that. 
if we can, and it's as Sally explained, it's hard to do, it's, to get really into these things takes a fair bit of time. But if we could have time, lots of time, to really understand connecting with people we don't know the details of, but we really connect them because we're all these humans, then that would easily flow into including the ones who are irritating me. Because it's the, it's the detail that irritates me that's difficult. It's the particular, the history, the story. But underneath that, they're six years old and they also are saying, love me, you know, I'm trying to feel better. But we forget that commonality because we get co-opted by the particular, whatever it is, that's, you know, driving us crazy or the pattern, if it's family members. It's not a good idea to go for family members on day one of difficult people. It's got way too much, that's why we say it's complicated, but what we mean is it's going to, it's, we're so vulnerable to be triggered by, you know, being stuck with that. All our whole lives, our family, we've got to deal with it. Or else we have to move, like I had to move from England to the west coast of Canada. <laughs> it's my way to try and cope with it. So, um, if we can go to what, what we're, where we're all connecting, then we find, yeah, we can be friends where we connect. Where we disconnect is where it gets more tricky. So stay on the realm of the connecting. Stay on the shared, the mutual. Here's a, 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 a beautiful words by Thomas Merton about this. Our exterior or merely superficial self, he's talking about this, the masked or sham or masquerading self that's saying, I don't, I don't mind if you love me or not, I'm fine, I've got my life together. The knotted cramp of the imagination or the solipsistic bubble who understands itself as the center of the world. As I think Temple said the other night, the individual who parades itself in disguise to impress the crowd the phony that makes faces at itself as if in a mirror to prove its own reality. The Cartesian ego who thinks of itself as in control of all truth. This is the servile and anxious self who feels that it is walking a tightrope across an abyss of nothingness. By contrast, there is the possibility of the true self who hides from ordinary consciousness like a shy wild animal that emerges only when all is very quiet, when no one is present. The true inner hidden or real self is the person who is capable of genuine dialogue, encounter and communion with others because in fact that person is an irrelevant nobody a non-identity who has lost self-consciousness and self-importance. And then the feared abyss is really the abyss of being, a fullness that awaits commitment, trust, and self-forgetfulness. Metta, and practicing metta is a practice of self-forgetfulness. It's a practice that takes us beyond self-concern, fear, need, anxiety, junk, all of our stuff. And the reason why it feels noble or beautiful or 
lovely or happy or whatever words you might want to is because we're expanded beyond this selfing. And that's the relief that we're all seeking through more selfing, of course. But So these words are so important in the teaching of, of uh, metta practice. This is the chant itself we chant at night. So with a boundless heart, should we cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. It's this vastness of friendliness that this is leading us towards. Spreading upwards. It's not pushing upwards or getting upwards or bringing the upwards down so I can do something with it. It's just this downwards to the depths, not just downwards sort of a few feet, but the depths, you know, it's like <laughs> outwards and unbounded. This is a vastness of possible connection. It's an extraordinary, speaking to the vastness that's possible when there's self-forgetfulness, right? And outwards and unbounded, freed from anger and ill will. Well, it's the anger not just literally anger, but any kind of conflictive, judgmenty, critical othering that prevents us to be as expanded as all-inclusive and forgetting the separate sense of self. Anger and ill will is a description of, that, of the ego behavior and how I and you are separated. When there is none of that, when there is no separation, that there is this vast interbeing experience. It's an experience. It's a perception that all is the same. There are the differences, the same way every wave on the surface of the ocean, you've heard this metaphor a million times, is different actually when you look at it from that one. But it is also as much ocean as the next one. Every of those waves is wet. Every of those waves is ocean. And every of those waves is separate from the next wave. They're separate and they're not at all separate. They're all the same thing. And we spend our lives untrained, unaware, thinking about separate bits of waves. And I like this wave and I want to get onto that wave. And I want to get this to be a really nice big wave that I can play on. And But actually we're forgetting that it's this is just manifesting superficial appearances of oceanness. So the movement is from these separate ways I like you and I would like you to be happy to this merged sense where we all belong and it's this, this natural connection. But it's only natural when the separate sense of self is going quiet. So we begin with our separate selves using our separate language and our individual friends and dogs or whatever we're using, but we are moving. We're moving beyond that level. That level is there and is real and is precious and is accessible for most of us in some form or another. But it's a doorway, as different ones of us have said, to move to a place that's way beyond me and my friend. So then we have this reflection, and this is where it becomes, we use the word a few times, purification, where this kind of practice is, it's so revealing to us, is because when we are 
inside ourselves. And when we're doing this practice of wishing well, using various other beings to help us access, and then more neutral beings, less personal stories, to access this connected possible heart, this kind, friendly openness, interested, respecting. What happens is we get to see what shows up. I mean, I was talking about this in the last talk I gave too, is how that is impeded, how we limit that. One of the um, words which I found overwhelmingly confounding actually when I've you know before I explored into meta more over the years of becoming more familiar with it was the idea of all beings which is going to be introduced to you tomorrow so may as well get used to this idea all beings the idea of being friendly with all beings I mean I just heard something on the radio that there's some unbelievable proportion like 5,000 times more weight of bacteria in the world than all the humans or some unbelievable huge amount of Bacteria, you know, well, all beings, including 5,000 times more by weight of humans, is a lot of beings. And I also read years ago that if you put all the ants in the world on one side of a scale and all the human bodies on another, the ants outweigh the humans 62 times. So, and you have to include all the ants in all, the, all beings. And to me, that's like, I can't go there. <laughs> that doesn't count all the snakes and all of the eels at the bottom of the ocean floor. So how on earth can I go from my puppy to all beings? You know? <laughs> but how we do this is, it's, uh, I've substituted for myself because I, I take a little bit of license with, with translation because I think, well, other people translated it with their ideas. So I, I use any, meaning any being who comes into my awareness, whose path I cross, who I'm engaged with in any way, knowingly or unknowingly, I mean, there's a lot that I wouldn't know about, you know, underneath the soil and in the air that I'm breathing and everything. But it, I don't have to go to the Antarctic and include all of the penguins, you know, I, with, with trying to... Because then it's like me trying to scale cliffs which are impossible for me. <laughs> Then I'm back to the doing and back to being frustrated and not doing it well, and that is not meta-ish. The point is to see how we qualify beings. This one, yes, and this one, no, not so much. To watch how we create limits in our own minds where there aren't any. I have created a boundary between, you know, this is as far as I can do my meta, I can do it in this side of the room, to about the 10th row, and then, sorry you lot. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but we can actually see how in our minds, that when, we, when we attempt to be friendly with a wider field, it's our own heart which shrinks and, and does like, I can't do that one. And we get to see ourselves putting our boundaries. And the Buddha's instruction is boundless, not boundaries, no boundaries. No, no separations. It's the shared. This is where this is taking us. This is profound. Because we're all, we, or we do boundaries all the time. We're wired to separate. You know, this is good. I like this one. I know this one. I don't know this one. I don't trust that one. Just anyway. And then to actually make it the opposite of that and then all inclusive. It's an enormous undertaking. Don't say, chant that lightly when we chant that at night. When we really start thinking what the implications are, they're unbelievably profound. And so um, the way the Buddha actually taught this was to 
visualize this openness of care that radiates. I love the word radiates. I immediately think of radiant heaters. And radiant heaters aren't pushing out the heat. They're just sitting there being hot. (laughs) And heat just does it. It just flows. It's not being pushed. It's not active. It's passive heating systems. The same way our friendliness, our caring, is this openness, this interest, this attention, with no limit, with not adding the good or you know better, not good enough, and I'm not sure, which is the little the little voice going. Not adding any of that, just open, including whoever, whoever it might be, any, anyone. Isn't it a beautiful idea? It's a beautiful concept. And we can see that's actually, we can begin to allow that. What we see is how we come up against our own fears, our own judgments, our own not being able to trust. And that's not a wrong thing. That's a survival level, and that's fine. But we get to see that. And we can see that that's painful. And that's work. And that's not deeply true, because even though they may be doing things, these, these eels that I don't actually, I find slimy, or that I th- it might sting me or something, they still want to be alive. And they still want, in their slimy, eely way, saying, love me. <laughs> and so, you know, like, just because I don't like them, who am I to not respect their life, you know? Who do I think I am saying, this one is worthy of my attention? But we do that all the time. This one is not worthy of my attention. This one doesn't live in a house, so they're not worthy of my attention. So I'm going to drive right by and turn, turn my face the other way. Because they aren't qualifying. In some way, I've put qualifications on it. We do this all the time with everything. That's why we have all of, all of the conflicts the entire world has is because of this. In whatever way it shows up, every way it shows up, it causes all the pain it causes that we all live with all the time. Whatever particular thing is. It's separating. It's like, no, this this is different. Think of that word worthy. It's one of the one of the uh words that's is that we all have to some however we use that word, but the sense of like I'm not really quite worthy enough when we go in feeling that feeling of please love me, please at least accept me, please notice me. I had a I had a very sobering experience a few years ago. Um, I live in a, a small community. Um, we're almost we're almost all white-skinned, relatively middle class. It's a very undiverse world where I live. Small, rural, back to the land, ex-hippie kind of people like me. And um, and it's a small community, relatively speaking, 10,000 people in total, including children. So that's not a very big community, no traffic lights or crime. It's ideal, I think. But because of the size of it, and I've lived there 38 years, I know a lot of people. And so I feel like this is my community. And so there's a lot of familiarity. And uh, for years, when I was younger, I'm now beyond these childish things. But when I was younger, we, me and my friends would dress up and go to, go to dance Halloween. We'd go to dances, but Halloween we would do our... Halloween dress up, dance, fancy dress dance. And uh, the last time I went, um, I dressed up in a, a, an appeared to be nobody in particular. I made myself sort of a, you know, a bigger bulky sort of shape 
and I put on the kind of clothing which I absolutely would never wear. I was chewing gum. I had uh, bobby socks and dirty running shoes, and I had a fake ponytail out of the back of a baseball hat, which I've never owned a baseball hat. And uh, and I had some had some sunglasses on, and I was basically kind of. I don't know, sort of the suburban mum from nowhere at a baseball game kind of look, which is not my look, if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> and, uh, and so I went, and um, what we would do in these, these things is because a lot of us knew each other, is we, would just, we wouldn't hide behind masks, we were just a different character, and then be these different characters, very entertaining, because we knew our characters. Well, what, I, what happened to me is I was there, and uh, of course, it's the time of year that it is, so it's often rainy. It was rainy. People would come in and take off their wet coats and kind of get their look together and their you know, character together, and then they'd scan the crowd of hall about this size, maybe. And, um, and then they would decide where they were going to go and interact. You know? And for half an hour, every person scanned right over me and went off and to somebody more interesting. And so that got a rather lonely and sad feeling. So I started to sidle up to be with, and I knew most of the people there, and I started kind of being, you know, chewing my gum, and I had my not, not lit cigarette, and I was just being this kind of, you know, frumpy kind of boring person, sort of dancing in a very unattractive sort of way. And, and, and no one in, related to me at all. It went on for another, like another 45 minutes, so like an hour and something. And I went home, I was just so depressed because there was no, I was dismissed, you know, I didn't belong. And these were my friends. It wasn't just like some you know, strange party somewhere. These are my, you know, people I've known for years. I've delivered lots of their babies. I've taught them yoga and so on. And no, I was nothing. And it was very sobering because it was really revealing of how we want to be seen. And I was going around, love me, love me. And no one was like, no, why would I bother with you? <laughs> it's, and we do that. How much do we do that with people? It was very, it was very. It wasn't the reason. That was the last time I ever went dancing. I, it wasn't. That didn't crush me that badly. But I grew out of going to those kind of things. But it was. It sort of like stayed with me definitely for some time. That's the opposite of kindness. No one gave me any attention at all. I'd asked for it. I'd sort of set myself up, but I hadn't really understood the implications of what I was doing. There's a little, one of those little sort of moral stories that I read somewhere that there were some nursing students in their first year of nursing school, and it was midterm, and they had a midterm exam, and a, you know, paper, a couple of pages of paper, and then they were to go home for their midterm break, and then come back and get their, get their exam results. And the last question on the test before they went home was, what's the name of the cleaning lady? And then they, whatever they did with their test and handed it in and came back and then they all asked the teacher and the teacher, you know, some of them said that was a, that was a trick question, right? Like we're nursing students and she said, that's not a trick question. You, you think you're going to be caregivers of people? Anybody who is going to come in with their needs and you don't even know the name of the person who's here every night taking care of your place? You think you want to be a nurse, do you? Very sobering. So then the last area of thinking I'd like us to reflect on in this practicing is um, 
that even though we might think ourselves separate and even though we might think that people are separate from us and whether or we bother with them or not or whether we you know, exclude them or not or struggle with them or not, whatever we do, we aren't in fact separate. Energetically, that's not a truth. Energetically, we're all impacting each other all the time. It's measurable scientifically if we doubt that. There are all kinds of studies our study guru over here, I'm going to ask her to get some studies and so I can have some examples of it. But um, for instance, when we communicate with each other, it's been assessed that 7% of communication happens on the words. That means 93% happens through body language, expression, intuition, all the rest of it, what's going on. So... You know, if you think that you're saying something and therefore communicating something to somebody and you have a whole other lot of feeling, all of that's being communicated as well. We're all the time communicating ourselves with each other. We can't not do it. We can't stop that. It's not the truth of things, energetically. And so when we turn ourselves towards the caring part of ourselves, when we invite these states into ourselves and we touch them, we are creating a whole bubble of that stuff. Now, bubble's the wrong word because bubble's got an edge to it. No bubble, a non-bubble of that stuff. <laughs> We're actually making that energy available and we are giving it. We can't not give it. We are actually affecting all of us by our consciousness. And by thinking it limited or by trying to limit it in whatever way we do or stopping it or believing it's possible to stop and avoid, that actually isn't even possible. But we behave as though it were, we, we believe as though it were. And so um, if we can remember that we, it isn't, it isn't just theory, this idea of interbeing, this is the reality of it. Although we function on the separate level, on the wave level, we don't function on the, on the ocean level. It's knowingly, consciously, but consciously we can grow that so that we co we're interrelating. So then it isn't, may I be happy, may you be happy. It's happiness is here. Ease is here. Care care. So even I care or you care. Is there is caring. There is interest as possible for us. There is time and space for us. And so when we practice especially as we begin to go into this area of all beings, practicing metta, it's not for anyone. It's not for a separate being and beings as though they're separate entities from each other. It's, it's much more the sense that kindness is radiating everywhere. Let it be everywhere. Don't stop it. And notice when you stop it, what's that about? That's your fear there. That's your belief that something's separate or not good enough or you've made some value judgment, which isn't really the truth. Notice yourself doing that. The purification is realizing the error of that, the limit of that, and the pain that that causes. Let your light shine. As the, I've got a three-year-old granddaughter. 
let my little light shine. She's, you know, they love singing songs at that age. Just let it be there, because it's there already. Let it not be covered and restrained. Notice the tendency to stop it and think, oh, it's never going to reach over to the end of the room, but just let that be. It's easy to say, just let that be, but that's what we're practicing. Seeing what's the cause of our unhappiness and see if we can see through that and be, in fact, way bigger than that. One story and one small poem. A true story. I haven't said this for years and years. I don't remember where I got it, but it was probably Jack Cornfield, who's a collector of great stories. Those of you who know him know this. There were a brother and a sister. This is a true story. The sister was six, the brother was four. The sister had some deadly blood disease, was going to die and they needed to find a perfect match for her, for somebody to transfuse blood to her or she would die. And they put out the requests and they couldn't find anyone. And then they tested and discovered that her four-year-old brother was the perfect match. But he was only four, so he couldn't really understand. But in simple language, they asked him if they would help him save his sister and she needed blood and he had the perfect blood to help save her, would he go and they explained be in the hospital in tubes and this and that and the other and and so he said yeah yeah he would they said you can think about it for a while it's you don't have to do it right away but just what you know what do you think and so he said yeah I'll do it so then they're explaining to him the procedure. He goes to the hospital. They're in their little beds together beside each other. They're all wired and everything. And then right before the whole thing happens, the surgeon involved says to him, you guys ready? Are you okay? Do you have any kind of questions? And the four-year-old boy says, I do have a question. Um, will I die quickly or will it take a little time? Because he thinks they've chosen her over him and he thinks that you know she, it will help her but and because they're his parents then he's trusted them but he doesn't know what that means even but he still said yes right away that's generosity that's a nice example of generosity they both survived well <laughs> yeah. and then here's a little sweet half his poem just sit there, right now, don't do a thing, just rest. For your separation from God is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you trays of food and something that you like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. I'll just do nothing for a few moments. Just sit there. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. 
just rest. For your separation from the Dharma is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you trays of food and something that you like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. Thank you for your attention. Hope it's helpful for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.